For some days, I haunted the spot where these scenes had taken place, sometimes wishing to see you, sometimes resolved to quit the world and its miseries forever. At length, I wandered towards these mountains, and have ranged through their immense recesses, consumed by a burning passion which you alone can gratify. We may not part until you have promised to comply with my requisition. I am alone and miserable. Man will not associate with me. But one as deformed and horrible as myself would not deny herself to me. My companion must be of the same species and have the same defects. This being you must create. Good evening, and welcome to Black Ink Red Film. I'm your host, Stephen Newton, and with me tonight, as always, is... Is Stephen Payne, and welcome, Burfers. We're heading into the lab tonight. So before we get started, let me thank Jen Brinkman for that lovely introduction. Yes. Jen's going to be reading a few passages of the classic novel tonight, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, or as she was known in one of the movies, Mrs. Percy Shelley. Yes, Mrs. Percy Shelley. That was very flattering. Right. This is a really special episode for me. So we're going to be talking about Frankenstein and reading the Frankenstein novel is the book that gave me the inspiration for this podcast. When I read Frankenstein the first time a couple of years ago, well, actually I read it like in high school. And I didn't remember any of it, but when I read it the second time, I should say a couple of years ago, I was just struck by how different the creature in the novel is compared to the movie. And in one of our drinking nights with Stephen E. I'm like, you know what would be a good podcast is people that talk about a book like Frankenstein and then the movie and how different it is and how, you know, we think about these creatures today. So this is the one that started it all. And you may be asking yourself, well, why didn't you start with this book then? And I know that would seem logical. And the reason we did not start with that one is because I wanted to get a couple of podcasts under my belt first with some of the, uh, you know, not as high profile material. So that's why we started with Pet Cemetery. I think was our first one, wasn't it? I believe it was, yes. Yeah, so I wanted to start with something not as meaty as Frankenstein, so we kind of had the groove under our belt, and I think we're here. So, we're at Frankenstein. We got Jen Brinkman with us, virtually. She sent in some voice clips, and we'll work them in. So why don't we get started? So, Stephen E., why don't you give us the rundown of the high points of the Frankenstein novel? Well, Frankenstein, or uh, the modern Prometheus, as it's also dubbed for very good reason, is about a brash young doctor, Victor Frankenstein, who's, uh, upon really entering medical school, wants to challenge the conventions of his profession, including the idea that we cannot cheat death. So during his studies, he sets out to create life from literally from scratch, going and collecting body parts from the charnel houses and whatnot, and putting a body together, then through some means of alchemy or techniques which are left, left a little vague in the novel on purpose, he creates the creature, basically a living human being. Uh, upon seeing this creature, he's not quite what he expected. Instead of getting Tom Hardy, he got Oliver Hardy or something <laughs> worse than that, and abandons his creature, leaving the creature to its own devices, where it goes off and has to struggle on its own and will eventually come seeking the doctor, basically angry at the abandonment, and starts killing some of the people close to Victor so that Victor will then help him will help him out by creating a mate. Yes, he, he insists that this, this being you must create, that was our, our intro passage yeah. from yes. Jen, is when the creature finally, after a few years of Victor being away, the creature confronts him and says, here's what you're going to do for me if you don't want me to keep killing people. Exactly. So Frankenstein initially relents, but then most of the way through the process starts to question if that was such a great idea or not, realizing if there's two of these things and he starts spawning, what in the world are we going to be unleashing on our planet? So he destroys the bride, which angers the monster further, and the path of carnage continues, leading to the two of them ultimately heading out into the ice and destroying each other. That's right. The one bit, uh, so Stephen, he hit the high points here. The, the one bit that sneaked by that I'd like to add was the novel itself is bookended in the Arctic. So when the novel opens, we're getting the point of view of Captain Walton, who's been trying to find the Northwest Passage. And uh, he's stuck in the ice and his 
crew is about to mutiny when they actually see the creature go bounding across the ice with his sled dogs. And then a few days later, Victor Frankenstein comes stumbling up, you know, again, in the frozen way saying, hey, have you seen a creature go by? It's an interesting, interesting framing device, but it really adds little to the story ultimately, which is, as we'll probably talk about later, why it, it rarely ever appears in any of the movie adaptations. Yeah. I think it's, uh, well, let's talk about it. So why don't we jump right in? So one of the themes I'd like to talk about is, and I don't think many people would associate this with Frankenstein, is the importance of friendship. In the novel, there are four characters, or I should say three characters, and they are all talking about in their own different ways about the importance of friendship and how lonely they are without a companion. So in the beginning of the novel, we have Walton in the ice writing letters to his sister about how important it would be to have somebody he could talk to. And then lo and behold, Victor shows up out of nowhere, literally out of nowhere, comes crawling across the ice and it's like, oh, this beautiful man and he's so wonderful. So we have that theme going across. When Victor Frankenstein, after he creates the monster, he starts to recognize the friendship of Henry Clerval, his best friend Henry Clerval, and how important that relationship is. And so that's why we have to kill Henry off later on in the book. Yes. Because we need some fodder to kill off. And then finally, and probably most important, is the creature and his loneliness. And we'll talk about regret and the creature's motivation, but what drives the entire second half of the novel is the creature trying to find his place in the world and who he belongs to, and then the rage that comes because he doesn't have anyone who loves him and he doesn't have a friend and he wants Victor to create him a bride. Right, and it's that section of the book that really is the most poignant. It really, I think, the novel kicks into its into its most powerful mode when we're dealing with the monster's plight. How about you, Stephen? What was uh, what were some of the major themes you pulled out of the novel? Well, for me, there there have been three three key themes to it, along with the one you pointed out, and this is, I think, why the novels resonated um, for two hundred years. Is first theme is really the the perils of man trying to play God, mm-hmm. basically going against creation, going against the idea that only God can create life, and when we try to get involved in doing it ourselves only disaster can occur. This goes back to the the subtitle of the novel of modern Prometheus, because Prometheus was more or less kicked out of heaven for he created humans from clay, then taught them how to use fire, and that was frowned upon by the other gods. The second theme um, that I think is a really powerful one that doesn't get explored a lot, along with friendship, there's a big theme here of the dangers of being a negligent parent. Hmm. Because if you think about it, Victor Frankenstein is about as the worst parent in, in many a novel. He creates this child, then it's ugly, and he doesn't like what it turned out to be. So he abandons the child and then spends most of the novel hiding from the child. And the child's really lashing out and has not been raised properly, having to struggle on its own. And, we, and it turns out to be disastrous for all involved. And that goes back to, you know, Mary Shelley... Her own background didn't quite go that deep. She apparently her her mother died shortly after she was born. Her father remarried someone that Mary didn't get along with very well. So there may have been some of those things uh, reflected in her own life. But I think that's one that doesn't get explored a lot. And the third theme for me is really more of an existential one. It's this whole idea and it's touched on in the novel, almost never even touched on in the movies. The idea that the monster explores and and the big question he has. So if I was created by man and not by God, does that mean I have a soul? Mm -hmm. And if I don't have a soul, what does that actually make me? And I really wish the movie, actually I wish the novel too, but I really wish the movies would have explored that more. Because I think that's that's a pretty heavy question to ask. And if you're the monster, you can see why that would torture you. Yeah, there are plenty of quotes in the novel. And we'll hear from Jen a little bit later on. But there are plenty of quotes in the novel where the creature is really just questioning his existence and lamenting uh, Victor's abandonment. So you're absolutely right. So not only is Victor a bad parent for all the reasons you just talked about, (laughs) because he does see this creature and immediately says, oh, it was ugly. And then I fled. Yeah. And then literally doesn't see the creature for two years and doesn't really even question. I wonder what happened to the creature. Victor is also a coward. Yes. If you think about what he does is once the creature starts tracking Victor down and killing him off or killing off his loved ones, there are several times where Victor could have come clean about what he knows about what he's created 
and he deliberately does not mention to his family, to Law, I can't remember the name of the maid, but she gets hung, you know, and he actually knows who the creature is or, you know, who the murderer is and doesn't say a word. So he's a coward. Victor's Victor's one of the most problematic characters in all of literature, and this is also why when we get to the movies, he's been very problematically dealt with even in the films. He would not, if you were to write this book today, it would probably not, not pass the sniff test in terms of Victor is a good protagonist because he is not proactive. He basically, and this has always been, I love the novel. It's actually my favorite novel for all of its flaws. But yeah, he creates this problem, abandons it, then spends most of the book whining and hiding and running from it. Right. It's right. not what you should be doing as the hero, quote unquote, hero of a book. Yeah. Or a movie. So he's well, and a not very problematic that, he's character. He's sick through most of the novel. Well, yeah. Yeah. So he, he sees the creature, <laughs> like, faints in fright and spends, like, you know, two months in a uh, feverish coma before Henry comes and rescues him. And then the same thing happens <laughs> after he gets back to Geneva. He's not a gallant individual. No, he's not. It's like, <laughs> yeah, he's the, the Dr. Smith of characters. <laughs> So we'll get to the we'll, we'll get to um, it would be interesting when we get to that part of the show about who we think has most closely portrayed the Victor Frankenstein of the novel in the films. Spoiler alert: Gene Wilder's near the top of the list. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting is the Frankenstein, the Victor Frankenstein of film has been our iconic Mad Doctor, right? I Correct. Think. So he is the iconic Mad Doctor, and. Really, the Victor Frankenstein of the novel, we get some of that in part one. I think we get his manic, you know, obsession. He is obsessive. Obsessive is how I would describe him, not not crazy. Not crazy, right? He's he's experimented, but he's not crazy, but definitely obsessive. Yeah, and I I, I don't think he's really, you know, like him on his lying on his deathbed through most of the novel has been captured that well in film. And, and perhaps it shouldn't have been, but that again, right. we'll discuss that later. I think the last one, the last theme I would like to talk about in the novel is regret. Mm-hmm. So this is one theme that I think most of the movies have touched on, although I don't know if they've done it the way it's done in the novel. So in the novel, most of the novel is Victor regretting what he's done woe is me, you know, life is terrible and I should never have done this. And in my feeling, most of the no- most of the movies that have portrayed Victor is he's created this thing and then the creature is violent and he can't control it more so than like, I never should have created this thing. And because this thing is so lonely and it's looking for me, I don't think Victor shows a lot of remorse in movies the way he does in this novel. I agree with you, and I think part of the reason for that, and again, the whole interpretation of, of Dr. Frankenstein in the movies is, is an upcoming subject here, but I don't think Hollywood knows how to deal with guilt and remorse in movies very well. It's hard to convey, again, when you're pretty much told that you have to have proactive individuals in movies, you have right. to have the hero who, even if he's coming back from a great falling, has to still take action. The Victor from the novel doesn't translate to movies very well as written. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why you don't see a lot of, you know, guilt. You don't see a lot of remorse. You don't see a lot of, you didn't see Peter Cushing or Colin Clive lying in beds playing Woe is Me for the <laughs> for 90 minutes. So yeah. I just think this was an emotion. Hollywood wanted to go broader, but, and, and not to skip too far ahead. This is why I, my favorite interpretation of the Doctor in the movies was Peter Cushing, mm-hmm. because the uh, Hammer, not even Hollywood, England, the British studio Hammer, decided, you know what, we're just going to make the Doctor pure evil. Mm-hmm. And we're, he's going to kill people to protect his what he's created, and we're just going to make him a bad guy. And not right. even deal with... Because, you know, thinking about it, when you and I discussed this not too long ago about the guilt factor, which is an interesting discussion, if you think about it, Someone who would have had the arrogance and the obsessiveness to create, to challenge God and create life from scratch, probably is so arrogant he's not going to feel guilt about much of anything. Yeah. And I think that's the approach that some of the better movies took when looking at the Doctor, especially right. again the Hammer films. Yeah, our Victor does have an epiphany about, 
you know, maybe I should have had more of a responsibility yeah, to this yeah. monster. Yeah. And it's like literally at the end of the book. Right. Yeah. Like, in it fact, was, it was a slow take on us. This part. is this is one of our quotes. So let's have Jen talk about it in Victor's own words. Excellent. During these last days, I have been occupied in examining my past conduct, nor do I find it blamable. In a fit of enthusiastic madness, I created a rational creature and was bound towards him to assure, as far as was in my power, his happiness and well-being. This was my duty, but there was another still paramount to that. My duties towards the beings of my own species had greater claims to my attention because they included a greater proportion of happiness or misery. Urged by this view, I refused, and I did right in refusing, to create a companion for the first creature. He showed unparalleled malignity and selfishness in evil. He destroyed my friends. He devoted to destruction beings who possessed exquisite sensations, happiness, and wisdom. Nor do I know where this thirst for vengeance may end. Miserable himself, that he may render no other wretched, he ought to die. The task of his destruction was mine, but I have failed. When actuated by selfish and vicious motives, I asked you to undertake my unfinished work and I renew this request now, when I am only induced by reason and virtue. Okay, so that's a lot about, so thank you, Jen. You know, that's some pretty language in that book, isn't it? You know, there are so many quotes in this book. I mean, we could quote this book all night long, and it just amazes me that a 20-year-old was using this kind of language, this kind of eloquence. I mean, a lot of people consider this one of the first sci-fi novels. Well, let me ask you this, because there are a lot of books written from Bram Stoker's Dracula, a lot of pretty language used back in those days. So, in your opinion, as a society, have we just gotten dumber or lazier, or do we just decide there are more efficient ways of saying, honey, I think the dog's on fire? I think it's all of the above. Like, I, I, I'm reading this on my Kindle, and... About every other page, I'm like, I have no idea what that word means. So, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so her vocabulary, Mary's vocabulary, Miss Wollstonecraft. Dig into Lovecraft. Enjoy that for a oh, while. Yeah. If you... <laughs> That's some pretty dense reading. Okay, so we've talked about Victor. We've talked about his character. We need to now talk about the creature. So what are your thoughts on the creature? So the creature is a very interesting character in literature, He's one of the few, again, going back to literature, he's one of the few monsters who actually is kind of a sympathetic creature. I mean, for all the bad things he does, to some degree we understand them because we uh, this wasn't his choice to come into the world. And again, he was an abandoned child. So he maybe goes a little bit overboard with some of the things he does. He commits murder. He is still a monster, the way he's portrayed in the novel. But he is a very fascinating character because he's he really is a ghastly individual, but we realize that where he's initially introduced almost as a demon, mm-hmm. especially the way Victor describes him, then we get to know the monster and understand his plight, and it's very tragic. And while we can't completely sympathize with everything he does, the way he carries things out, because there's clearly a rage inside him, we still understand it's not his fault he got there entirely. So he's... He's a very, very interesting, interesting monster, unlike, I think, anything we'd really seen before, because he's both both frightening, he's extremely dangerous, but there also is a, a sympathetic element to how he got here. Yeah, I would definitely say there's a sim- sympathetic element to how he got here, but I would also go on to say he's a dick. Um, well, so is Victor. I mean, well, yeah, are, ne- neither of these characters are rooting interests. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. He... Uh, because the creature, you know, he is confused. He tries to go and find his maker and the maker like shuns him. And then he spends a good uh, baker's dozen of pages hanging out, learning to read and learning about humanity by watching this family in, right. in the cabin. And then when that family shuns him, then he's really pissed off. And then he decides to go killing people. And then he decides that, oh, and then he finds Victor's diary and that's when he understands like in his jacket or something and that's when he understands that victor's the one that created him and then and then he's like oh i'm gonna go make his life a hell right right so which is i think there's some degree of inconsistency with the writing there to some degree i'm not sure if and this is some of the movies later on plugged a couple holes there 
but the fact that uh, and again she's uh, the monster to some degrees an allegory as much as anything i think but yeah the fact that he is very sympathetic but then he does go turns it up to 11 when it comes time yeah. to address issues but this is uh, but then both of these things tie into the key themes of this you know the monster really is a victim himself but he's also and he's never really been taught right from wrong i mean he's the classic child with an underdeveloped brain right and has an awful lot of weird emotions and doesn't even know what accountability is for the most part so yeah it's is a complex character. I don't know that it, the writing of him was consistent enough, but he was a very complex character, and he was a dick. But I, again, I would say, Victor, uh, if you if you did root cause analysis on this, <laughs> the, the root pretty much uh, the the dick root pretty much stops at his daddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of this could have been avoided if Victor wasn't like uh, scared of his milky eyeballs and his deform. It's like, was that the first time you notice this? You've been building this creature for the last. Well, let, let's face year. it. If every parent abandoned their kids because they're ugly, you and I would have been orphans. That's true. I'd be stalking the <laughs> landscape as we speak. Ah, <laughs> uh, in fact, I think we have one more clip from Jen where Victor looks upon his animated creation for the first time and gets to squint into the milky eyes. Well, let's hear it. Jen, take us away. It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning, the rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out when... By the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe, or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavored to form? His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful. Beautiful! Great God! His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness. But these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same color as the dun white sockets in which they were set, and his shriveled complexion and straight black lips. Okay, so why don't we talk a little bit about some of the other characters in the book, um, some of the supporting players. We can just touch on them. We talked about Walton, so he's a captain. He bookends the piece. He's the one that's captain of the ship. He comes through his own epiphany, looking for friendship. Here's Victor's sad tale. Yeah, I mean, he's also, again, he's, I'm not as excited about this character as... Well, clearly the movies weren't either since they almost all of them excluded him. But, I mean, really his whole role here is to be the one who learns the valuable lesson from right. Frankenstein's tale and then make take the right course of action with his crew and his ship. So that's he's the one learning the lesson ultimately in this, mm-hmm. in this story. We have Henry Clerval, his friend. So Henry is a dutiful friend, doesn't have as much wherewithal as uh, Frank. Frank is able to go off to... Ingolstadt or wherever it is that he went off to school, but Clerval had to stay behind and become like an accountant or something like that. Yeah, he's cannon fodder. Yeah, he is cannon fodder. So he's the one that, you know, oh, you've been there for me all along. And then, of course, he gets eaten. Um, <laughs> there's the rest of Victor Frankenstein's family. And this this threw me a little bit. So there's Victor's dad. There's his brother, who's effectively the chuck cunningham of the story because he's mentioned well actually he has two brothers so one of his brothers get killed um one of his brothers yes, is the a, little brother yeah the little brother gets killed and then the other one is just kind of like not mentioned all that much so anybody who are taking bets on how many happy days references we were going to make <laughs> you won <laughs> right and then finally we have elizabeth as the love interest and this is where i was going to go with this one Elizabeth in the 19 or the 1818 version of the novel, I think she actually is the cousin. I think you're right. And then in the in the 1831 version, she's a uh, a waif that the family adopts. And this this messed with me because I was reading. I have two Kindles, 
and I was reading the story on both, and apparently I downloaded the 1818 version on one and the 1831 version on the other. I'm like, what? What the hell's happening here? Because I was actually reading two different novels at the same time. Yeah, I was always under the impression she was the cousin. Maybe I did not read the later She's like Ray's? In the 1818, I believe she is. Yeah, yeah. And then in 1831, she's like Ray's like the cousin, but she's still... It's still a little creepy and incestuous. I don't know how many of the... Well, yeah, she was basically being raised as his sister regardless. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the themes in it as well. Is like, so Victor, maybe you don't think of me as a lover, even though you've known me since I was two. And yeah. Victor had issues. Victor had issues. Um, any other major characters we missed? Um, there's some school teachers. Oh, there's the maid who's framed for the murder of oh, the yeah, younger yeah. brother. She's hung um yeah i mean the the supporting characters are there to either provide a little bit of conscience or otherwise they're there to, to pretty much be cannon fodder yeah. uh, for uh, people to, the victor will lose to the monster because of his his horrible quest i think the uh the family so when the creature is roaming the countryside so from a, from a timeline point of view in the novel victor creates the monster looks upon him that first night says <laughs> goes taken off and then when he comes back to the apartment eventually the creature is gone so then when we get the creature's narrative later on apparently he went stalking the landscape for a while and hid in a cabin like a, a nook and cranny in a cabin for two years watching some family so we learn about the rise and fall of this family right and that's how it's watching this family that the uh, creature eventually learns how to language and morality and whatnot and this is also where we get the blind man character because Correct. at some point yeah yeah the creature approaches the blind man so yeah so throughout the number of movies that have come up we've seen like bits of each one of these characters portrayed different ways but the big ones are obviously always victor's there the creature's there elizabeth is there even though in the novel, she, most of her action happens off screen until their wedding night when she gets killed by the creature. Yeah, Elizabeth's role in the movies is ranges from a little to a little more. There's right. not, not always a ton of her in the movies. Yeah, and then Walton himself, which I think is only was only in the Branagh movie that I saw of, of the movies we did. There are two that I'm aware he was in. So Well, actually, let's was, pause there. Let's yes. put in one of our fancy bumpers, and Ooh. then we'll talk about the movies. Oh, there you go. And here we are in that part oh, of the show. Oh, here we are. Wow. <laughs> where we talk about the differences between movies and films or just how the creature is classically portrayed in movies. Well, Stephen E., for those of you at home, Stephen E., just put on his glasses. I so put that... on my glasses. Those of you thought I didn't need glasses, well, yeah, times change. So if, if you're going to all hang in there for a minute, one thing I'm going to do to lead into the movie discussion is go over so there have been over 200 frankenstein movies made. that is a lot of frankenstein it's a lot of frankenstein i mean a lot of frankenstein i'm not going to talk about all of them i promise but what i was going to do is go ahead and go through a quick timeline like i did with dracula of what i ranked or not ranked but consider the 10 films that at least tried their best to closely resemble the novel okay. now i'm not going to hit all of them Couple there are there are a few other TV movies and miniseries that I didn't see and and probably won't. But so some of you may say, hey, there's what about that? There's a lot of Frankenstein. There's, there's a lot of Frankenstein. So many hours in the day. But frankly, if I didn't see it and you never heard of it, then don't worry about it. Let's pretend <laughs> like it wasn't there. So let me go through this timeline very quickly. So so it all started in 1910 with Thomas Edison's Frankenstein. So this was actually a 12 minute long silent film, as you would expect it would be. That's actually quite good. If you have it, it's on YouTube. Take a look at it. It's quite fun. There's a really cool special effects sequence when the monster's being created. We'll put links in the show notes, so we'll, yeah. we'll help you find it. Yeah, it's it's not hard to find, but you know, give that a watch. And after, frankly, after I saw it, my thought was, you know what? Maybe every horror film ought to be 12 minutes long. This seems to be about right. <laughs> so from 1910, we popped to 1931 with James Whale's Frankenstein. So following only a few months after. Todd Browning's Dracula with Bela Lugosi. We, Universal brought us Frankenstein, and these two films really invented the horror genre. This, of course, had Colin Clive, who was the really portrayed the Doctor as a mad scientist, right. although strangely sympathetic at the end, which is a problem, and, of course, introduced the great Boris Karloff as the monster. 
Four years later, we get The Bride of Frankenstein in 1935, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. Once again, James Whale directs Colin Clive and Boris Karloff reprise their roles. It's an interesting film because it really is sort of revolutionary in many ways, and you can also tell James Whale's having a little bit of fun with the studio at the same time. This also fills in some blanks from the novel that did not appear in the 1931 film, including The, the Blind Man in the Cabin. Right. Then, uh, really, for the next 15 years, Frankenstein shows up in a bunch of sequels, tangling with Dracula, the Wolfman, and ultimately being being destroyed by Abbott and Costello. That's <laughs> what happened. So we don't get much Frankenstein until 1957, when a nearly bankrupt English studio called Hammer Studios made a low-budget film called The Curse of Frankenstein, that, along with the horror of Dracula the following year, would really smash open the horror genre again. At that point, England would really declare themselves the new kings of horror for about the next 15 years. So this one had Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, made both of them in International Stars, and this one launched six sequels hmm. over the next couple decades. Then we go ahead, so not much happened during the 60s other than sequels to The Curse of Frankenstein. 73, we get a little scene but very, very good TV movie adaptation called Frankenstein, cleverly enough directed by Dan Curtis of Dark Shadows fame, and he also did a great Dracula movie, with a really sympathetic portrait of the monster, I think one of the very best, by Bo Svensson, who some might remember as Buford Pusser in the Walking Tall series. <laughs> but very good for all, he's very good in it. It's a surprisingly good film. That same year, we got one of the great guilty pleasures of all time, another TV miniseries called Frankenstein, The True Story. So if you haven't seen this one, look it up, folks, because... This one is truly outlandish, but still has strong roots. It includes James Mason as a very strange villain who has ninja sidekicks in it. It has uh, It's surprisingly gory for a TV movie of the time. And it has Jane Seymour playing a particularly creepy and menacing version of The Bride. Hmm. So check this one out. It's really outlandish and really kind of fun. Then we go ahead to 1974 when we get one of the strangely most accurate versions of the story, Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein, which was probably the first Frankenstein film I ever saw in the theater. It was definitely the first one I saw in the theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah in 74. So, you know, Gene Wilder plays the Doctor. Even though this is a comedy, it had very strong roots, especially in the Universal films, but also in the, in the main story. And see, I wouldn't say it's necessarily accurate to the novel as much as it's now that we've gone through this it's accurate to those first three it's, it's completely skewering with deadly accuracy <laughs> frankenstein bride of frankenstein Correct. and son of frankenstein yes that's true yeah i also i mentioned gene wilder earlier in this role his performance as the doctor if you think about it he was probably the most responsible of all the dr frankensteins Correct. in all the movies at least he gets the guy up on a stage show that's true that's true then we, <laughs> yeah, Colin Clive didn't do that. Yeah. Then we jump ahead to 1994 with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Kenneth Branagh's big budget adaptation of the story, which you could argue is probably the most accurate of all the uh, of all the tellings for most account. Branagh directed and played the Doctor, and Robert De Niro played the monster. Although he kind of played him as Max Cady from Cape Fear if he'd been in a bad car accident and was looking right. for money. This one also had the, had the running joke at the time of Mary Shelley saw it and she wants her name removed from the <laughs> title. Well, that one, you know, we didn't talk about it, but in the, in the novel, the creature is incredibly articulate. Yeah. You yeah. know, he learns language. He speaks just as well as Victor. And to the best of my knowledge, that's been the only movie I've seen where the creature does more than just like good and, and whatnot in the non well in the non-hammer and universal ones the creature tended to be more or at least more somewhat more articulate in the universal interpretation which he was a brain damaged creature yeah which helped cover some ground fill in some gaps from the novel or allow him to take some shortcuts that wasn't the case um just two more in 2004, we got Frankenstein, the miniseries with uh, Alec Newman and Luke Goss. This is probably, along with the Branagh film, the closest to the novel. Um, it actually fills in some holes very well from the novel and is the only other one other than Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that has the Walton character in it, played mm. by Donald Sutherland. And finally, in 2015, we got Victor Frankenstein. <laughs> 
with James McAvoy. I love James McAvoy. Daniel Radcliffe as Igor. Yeah. And written by Max Landis. So yeah. let that stew for a while. So that is a brief history of the 10 movies adaptations that, in my opinion, most closely reflect the intentions of the novel. Now, while I have not seen it, um, in preparation of this, there were several people that said, hey, if you're doing Frankenstein, make sure you bring about the Benedict Cumberbatch, Johnny yeah. Lee Miller version of it, because apparently it's quite good. I haven't seen it. but uh, I've heard the same. It looks like it's an interesting take on it. I hope to see it at some point, actually. Because, right. yeah, you're right. We'll probably have the same sources on that, yeah, but yeah. I've heard it's quite good. I think it was a stage play adaptation. Yeah, I think it's on the London stage. That's why yeah. I couldn't find it streaming anywhere. Um, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So apparently it was a London production. And there's so much you could talk about in the movies. But I would say, and, and again, this is how we started this podcast, or this whole idea for the podcast, I think the image that most people have of Frankenstein is the one that was portrayed by Karloff in those first few movies, right? The lumbering, the silent, the bolt out the side of the neck. Well, first to the gate usually is the one people remember. So with the 31 film, you got Colin Clive playing the doctor as mad. Mm-hmm. But again, the, the big problem I always have with that film is he's really left off the hook at the end, which right. bugs me. And Karloff, again, they, they were able to skip over a lot of complexity by essentially having him created with a defective brain, mm-hmm. the Abbey normal brain, as we learn in Young Frankenstein. And therefore, he was a, a violent mute who didn't want to be a violent mute, and Karloff plays him with a lot of sympathy despite not having lines. But that, yeah, that's that's how they handled it. They had the doctor played a lot more broadly, mm-hmm. and they had the monster simplified. In fact, true story, Lugosi was supposed to play the Frankenstein monster. Hmm. There are somewhere out there some very valuable test shots of him with the makeup while he was still making Dracula. Oh, interesting. When they took the dialogue out of the monster's dialogue, Lugosi wanted nothing to do with the role. Right. So right. it wound up, through a long story, eventually wound up with Karloff. But yeah, that was, again, they were the first ones to really make a big deal out of this movie. And so those are the ones that became the benchmark for everything that came after. Now, I'm not snobby film historian, but one of the things I do see a lot as part of my armchair research, I'm a, I do gentleman's research, right? I don't go Is much Is that what farther. they call it? Gentleman's research? Gentle- okay. I do gentleman's research. So you're on YouTube a lot and Wikipedia. That's right. Me yeah. too. Okay. But one of the things that, at least from the few articles I read during my gentleman's research, is Bride of Frankenstein is generally considered either as good a movie, a better sequel than the original. Your thoughts? I rank it as the third greatest horror film of all time. It's very polarized. I know it's not your favorite. I mean, it's very polarizing for a lot of people. And really to appreciate that film, first of all, you a lot of people argue it's a comedy even more than it is a horror film. Mm-hmm. Which it's, is why I don't like it. It's kind of like a little tongue-in-cheek for me. Well, and that's, again, it's, it, there are polarizing elements of it. I, I think it's brilliant because, in part, it's very nihilistic. It's not what the studio expected from it. James Whale has a lot of fun with it. James Whale, uh, I believe, was homosexual, and there's a lot of undertones in the film that where he's trying to sneak some things in past the studios. He, I think it's the first film to really bring some of the mortality questions and some of the God versus man questions mm-hmm. into the story. And it's really a, it's a strange, but I think a truly wonderful and magnificent film. The fact that he could pull that off with the studio behind it is really amazing. So there's a lot of great things about it. And the scene in the cabin with the old man and some of the existential dialogue, it's just, for me, it's a wonderful movie. So those those two movies specifically, so for you horror fans out there who have not actually sat and watched it in a while, I, I strongly encourage you to do so. The the production design, the sets of those oh, gosh, yeah. of those movies are just magnificent. Oh, yeah. You know, everything's at weird angles, they're huge and cavernous. The lab is one of the you know, Frankenstein's lab is one of the most iconic sets in history. It's, it's just visually a feast to watch that movie. A little black and white photography is amazing. Yeah. So I, I will give it that. So The Bride of Frankenstein, for those of you who have not seen it, it opens with Mary Shelley chatting with her husband, Percy Bishy Shelley and Lord Byron. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, oh, Mary, whatever happened to that creature you wrote about? And her saying, oh, well, that wasn't the end, you know. Let me tell you what happened. And just like the way to open that yeah. film was just so bizarre and wonderful. So I yeah, did like yeah. that part of it. Yeah. And you'll have to remind me who the actress is. But it's Elsa Lanchester. Yeah. So she plays 
Mary Shelley, as well as um, the bride, the bride for the last six minutes of the film, the bride's in it. Mm -hmm. The bride's not actually in the Bride of Frankenstein all that much. Well, it's really more about the quest to create the Bride of Frankenstein than it is. Oh, here's the bride; she's running loose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I did actually forget to mention, for what it's worth, there was also whatever it was, the bride, Mm -hmm. which had with Sting playing the Doctor and Jennifer Beals as the bride. And Clancy Brown is the monster. Right. So I think I remember that. that yeah. And as you were talking about James Whale, there is uh, uh, Gods and Monsters with Sir Ian McKellen. Yes. And Terrific movie. What's his bucket in it? I, I think uh, Clyde Brendan Barker, Frazier. actually. Yeah, Brendan Fraser. Clyde Barker was one of the executive producers of that one. Um, fantastic soundtrack by Carter Barwell. That's mm-hmm. one of my favorite soundtracks of the film as well. And so, and then, yeah, we do need to talk a little bit about, um, I mentioned it earlier, but Young Frankenstein. <laughs> As I was watching Son of Frankenstein with the the detective with the wooden arm. Right, Len L. Um, character, yeah. Yeah, the the actual huge door knockers. I mean, there were so <laughs> many, it's like, oh, he got that part of the movie in it. The uh, the Cloris Leachman character pulled from Bride of Frankenstein. It's just like, I mean, just so deadly accurate for, for all three of those movies that he's lampooning in, in that. It's just, it's amazing... It's amazing. I mean, it was a funny movie to see then, and it's even more clever having gone back and watched those first three Frankenstein movies to see how accurate he was to all that. Well, if I recall, Brooks actually got a lot of the original props and some of the remaining sets for Young Frankenstein that were used on the on the James Whale films. So mm-hmm. he, I mean, they were still in the Universal, you know, warehouse. So he was able he. He was obviously a huge fan of the original films. You probably saw him as a kid. Right. And, um, yeah, he recreated the uh, everything, just even the black and white photography. I mean, yeah. he nailed it. So, you know, as we like to do on the podcast, uh, there's so many movies you could talk about with what did what decisions did they make? Was it accurate to the novel? Did it capture the spirit of the novel? I don't know what we would pick. So I, I guess maybe we could do our top three. Who do we think play well you already said gene wilder you think victor frankenstein well, has been best portrayed by gene wilder well <laughs> i was only being slightly facetious about it. he's probably my favorite doctor just because again he was the only one of the victor frankenstein or henry frankenstein whatever they actually yeah. named him in that one who seemed to almost have his own weird moral center he was a good combination of the mad scientist but someone who actually legitimately treated the monster as his child yeah he was actually the responsible parent version of right. dr which is not in the novel exactly right? <laughs> yeah but for me the best doctor of all time was uh peter cushing in the hammer films because for reasons i said earlier they found the right note to play with him they weren't going to have the guilty grief-stricken doctor he was he was a cold-blooded sociopathic mad scientist Mm -hmm. he murdered people he probably killed more people than the monster did throughout his series of movies and was constantly on a quest a very selfish quest to prove this could be done so i he was always my as much as i love colin clive in the universal films because just the notes he hit really set the tone for everybody yep but cushing was my favorite of the doctors yeah, and then the Doctor isn't, like we said earlier, the Doctor isn't necessarily evil in the novel. He's an idiot. He's right, a, right. Know, he's, he's a horrible parent, and then he's a coward, <laughs> and he's sickly um, until he has to go traipsing across the tundra at the end. Um, he has a tendency to run away from his problems, quite literally. Like, right. Yes, oh, my, my, my brother was killed, so I went up into the hills where I would take the air, you know. He's not a role model. He Let's is just not, say he's, he's not, not a role, role model. model. Uh, who do we who do we like for our best portrayal? Or actually, let's do favorite portrayal and then yeah. most accurate portrayal of the creature. We'll do it. Well, I think the most accurate portrayal of the Doctor. So, like Cushing's my favorite. I I, I think you probably have to go with Branagh in the Mary Shelley Frankenstein as far as the most quote unquote accurate portrayal of the Doctor. Correct. But I also so I, I just somewhat through default I guess. Mm-hmm. But I'll go back to the miniseries. Alec Newman played the doctor and he played him very well. Also, uh, he, and I'll say this about his character. So in the novel, he sees the monster and he's ugly and he runs away and hides in this version of the miniseries. They handle that very well where he actually shoots the monster thinks he's dead. Mm. And then he goes on about his quest, but the monster survives and we carry on. So, um, but no, I think Brano's probably the most accurate portrayal of the, Doctor from the Frankens uh, from the novel, complete with flowing blonde hair and 
abs and everything like that. So, Riding on horseback right, into the yes, village. Yes, he looked like he came off a romance novel in the movie, yeah, but yeah. fine. But I think Peter Cushing's my favorite movie portrayal and interpretation of the character. I, I will say the one that I enjoyed was it son of frankenstein with basil rathbone yeah yeah, yeah. so he that's does a, a really that's a really interesting take on the character and he's literally the son of frankenstein so yes um, that's an underrated film too yeah so that was a really good one okay um so we've done the creature we've done frankenstein um and, we didn't do the creature yet. oh we didn't do the creature yeah, sorry, okay. I, I, yeah so let's I do the creature. practice well karloff is will forever be the definitive version of the creature for me absolutely um for He's, everyone, for well, you listeners, well, Be- you're listening to this podcast because of, <laughs> you know, Karloff. Well, well, exactly. I mean, again, he had the advantage of pretty much being the first, but I think his contribution was underrated over time because even in the first film where he has no lines, there's a certain degree of sympathy he's able to, and and humanity he's able to project from this character into tons of makeup and a horrible, co- horribly uncomfortable costume. In Bride, he's. Once he now has dialogue, he's very sympathetic again. He conveys humor and tragedy. I think there's a lot about his performance that goes beyond just, oh, look, it's he's in the makeup and he stumbles around. Later on, I, my other, I think my second favorite monster after that was Bo Svensson's portrayal in the TV movie, the Dan Curtis TV movie, because he really, he play, he's articulate. But he also is very vulnerable because he doesn't, he's childlike. He doesn't know his own strength. Mm-hmm. In that movie version, he kills the younger brother by accident. Mm. He's playing with him, and I think he hugs him too hard and inadvertently kills him, which makes him, again, kind of more of a sympathetic character. So uh, those are Frank uh, Karloff's the definitive one. Um, for me, Bo Svensson's probably the second best are up there as far as my favorite portrayals of the monster. Yeah, let me let me pause there and jump back a little bit to the novel just so just so our readers are aware, our listeners are aware. Let's do a quick body count of how many people uh, the creature kills the novel. So he <laughs> he I think the first victim is Victor's little brother. Yes. And then it's the maid character. Mm-hmm. And then it's Henry Clerval. Yeah. And then... Well, the maid indirectly, he basically frames her for murder, right? Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, so technically... still, he, he did it. So he he gets her framed, for, yeah. and he does. He actually frames her for murder, leaves the locket in her right. jacket, blah, blah, blah. He then... He kills Clerval. He kills... He kills his father, right? Uh, no, his father dies of a heart attack. Okay, that's right. But I believe he kills, like, some somehow... Once Victor agrees to build the bride, he goes off to the Orkney Islands in Scotland. So somehow he's able to build another bride. Yeah. And it's there that he gets... Oh, no, that's Clerval that he kills. It's like Clerval that they actually find. I thought it was a a villager. So, yeah, so that's the Clerval death. And then, of course, he says, I'm going to be there with you on your wedding night. Right. And so that's when Victor says, okay, well, now I'm going to marry Elizabeth and I will catch the fiend in the act. But... He doesn't tell anybody about that. And, of course, the creature kills Elizabeth at the end. Right, right. And so he kills. And these are all, I think all of them die by strangulation. So. Correct. Well, I thought, yeah, 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 you're right. So he he kills them all by strangulation and then basically goads Victor into chasing him across the ice until Victor dies of fatigue and hypothermia and broken heart and everything. He kills a bunch of dogs, too. Yeah, I think he does kill some dogs. Um, He really is a dick. Yeah, he's not. He's not a good guy. No, I mean, I know no. he's mad. Yeah, that's, that's... no, I'm not inviting him over to watch the game right. with me. No, right, right, right. Okay, so sorry. So that was a little bit of a diversion. <laughs> so I know we. I, there's that that famous quote is like, "Oh, Frankenstein was the monster." It's like actually, the creature's a dick, and Frankenstein's a dick. Well, yeah, yeah. All right, so let's get back to it. If you are lazy and you want to see the most accurate portrayal of the novel in film form, it's going to be Brano's version. Yeah. It would be. I don't know that it's it's not certainly not the best film, but if you right. are and it, clearly they still take liberties similar to the Bram. Oh Stoker sure, Dracula. yeah. I, I actually think there's some kind of smart liberties, but it will answer if you have if you have that kid who doesn't want to read the novel or even bother with the spark notes, you probably could go to the Branagh version. It's where I would direct you to it anyway, and it also answers that age old question: What would happen if you put John Cleese's brain into Robert De Niro's body? <laughs> <laughs> that's what happens in the movie. That's true. And, that's I, true. and when that happened in the movie, I really couldn't get past that for anything else, quite <laughs> honestly. Let's see. What do we want to close with with, with our friend Frankenstein? <laughs> 
it's like th- this started all i mean that that 1931 film is magic it yeah is, it is you know between it really is. whale's direction and the product design and karloff and and everything else the music you know mm-hmm. that creates the horror genre for the next like you said 20 years or thereabouts yes yeah. so yeah check it out and go see it any any last thoughts on frankenstein that we need to talk about before we cut over into housekeeping well i don't know do we want to talk a little bit about if they were to go forward and make another one which they no doubt will what would uh, what approach would we like to see let me throw that to you first it's a great question so when we talked about dracula i thought how i wanted to genre jump it a little bit Mm -hmm. so what the keynotes of frankenstein are creating creatures abandoning them i mean really if you think about jurassic parks a little bit Oh, gosh, yeah. You know, a Frankenstein tale. It's like, I create these things, can't really control them. But I think what I would do with it is I would probably modernize it, some sort of, like, gene splicing. And then really, I think the story you would want to tell is, like, somehow create the the important part for me is creating the creature and then abandoning it, right? So really not taking, I, I think, a little bit like, maybe like what Stranger Things have done with Eleven. You know, they create these super kids, but then they just keep them locked up. Yeah. I think I would want to explore that angle of the story more so than the mad doctor. It's like, you know, what responsibility do you have to these things you create? Dolly the sheep and whatnot. Right, right. When things start to go wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think... So my first inclination would be I might be inclined to want to keep it a period piece again. Yeah. And keep it in an era I think sort of, it sort of works there. But because I think the, all horror movies should be period pieces. I mean, honestly. I do too, because I think you've heard my my rant about cell phones have destroyed horror films. Mm-hmm. Because if most of your classic horror films, if anyone had a cell phone, the danger would be over and we'd be out of the theater right, in 15 right. minutes. But I think Frankenstein really leans its, lends itself to a period piece. But then again, the themes still resonate today, and that's why it's so powerful. We have not gotten past the idea that we want to try to play God. You know, we have the classic science versus theology arguments going on today, maybe even stronger than they ever were before. I think if you were to hold a gun to my head and say you were the studio and you say, you know what, we just made this Invisible Man movie set in present time and we want to do that with Frankenstein. I think you're right. I think we could, the danger would be you have to avoid making it Westworld. Because Westworld really is already gone that time. But I would set it in Silicon Valley because right now, while this used to be the home of semiconductors and video games and, and guys smoking pot in our office and things like that, really this has become the hotbed for startup medical device and pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, I would turn this into a tale similar to what... I, I might even make an Elizabeth Holmes-like character from Theranos, oh, the doctor. Brilliant, yeah. Because there really is a push right now for all these companies are being competitive, trying to find better ways of doing surgery ways of avoiding during surgery, treating cancer, treating COVID-19, mm-hmm. treating diabetes. And I've been at some of these companies. If you were that medical device or pharma company that was working under the radar of the FDA and you were developing, here's how we make some a person from scratch or yeah. cheat death, you're now the top, the hot, the hot yeah. company in the area. And, and you're if, absolutely right. That's yeah. Westworld season two, right? Yeah. We're gonna, yeah. We're going to make yeah. you immortal by rebuilding you. Right. Yeah. So I think you'd, you'd, you'd have to go that route. I think you're right. We still have to keep this main themes or maybe experiment four mm-hmm. is the one they threw out into the dumpster, not realizing it was still <laughs> alive, but yeah, you could, you could do it. I still, I I'm, would be a sucker for the Gothic version of it, but you could leverage what we have going on now in Silicon Valley. And again, if folks, if you haven't read up or watched a documentary on Theranos, please do that. Yeah. Um, like Bad Blood or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. That tells you a lot of what of the, that really sets the tone for what I'm talking about, what's happening in Silicon Valley. So you could do it. Um, I'm interested now just on a si- sidebar. We know that Leigh Whannell, who did the Great Invisible Man movie, is now in talks to do a Wolfman movie. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious to see what direction they're going to go, if they're going to make that a modern take or a gothic timepiece. I'm going to lean to where I think they're going to make it a modern film. It could be, yeah. So yeah, there's been a million takes on Frankenstein from like Nazis recreating Frankensteins to one of them being left in the cold in the Arctic. One of them was a Jap- giant Japanese monster who fought an octopus. Oh, well, there we are. But I'm always interested to hear from our listeners because you guys might have good ideas of Frankensteins that we didn't cover that we should have mentioned or a genre Frankenstein 
that we should consider. Not that I'm making any movies, but I'm always keen to hear <laughs> what you're thinking. So let's talk a little bit about listener mail. We got mail. So our last episode, we did the 40th anniversary of Friday the 13th. In that movie, we asked the question, were women objectified in that film? We talked a little bit about it. And we have some listener mail. Outstanding. So Sarah writes in and Sarah says, I'm going to try to go through this quickly, but I want to do it justice. I actually feel that a common denominator in most horrors are the objectification of women. You touched on the fact that a person in slashers who survives is typically a female. More than that, they are usually portrayed as more innocent than the other women in the film, whether it's a matter of having less dating experience or being an actual virgin. It feels in many ways like women in horror are being punished for enjoying sex. Cabin in the Woods did a great job of poking fun at this trope. I spit on your grave and last house on the left into this way of thinking also. The female protagonist was innocent and therefore her attacks, her attackers were punished at the end. There's the link between sex and evil to consider. Which movies are a perfect example? The witches use their sexuality to entice their victims or couple with Satan. It seems a lot of horrors follow that line of if a man in a movie is sexually violent, it's because he is a psychopath or if he's a regular guy who has sex, well, boys will be boys. If a woman is sexual in the movie, it's because she is simply a whore slash evil. Of course, there are exceptions, but this is accounted enough. I'm reasonably comfortable painting a lot of horrors with this brush. These viewpoints are nothing new. Many critics have denounced horror as being anti-woman propaganda. Ultimately, I can agree that the side of things to a point, I won't get into it here because it's already a long letter, but there's no denying that death and sex make very compatible bedfellows, pun intended. So, Sarah, thank you very much for your yeah. letter. Thank you for writing in. Thanks for listening. Thoughts? Well, first of all, Sarah, that's an outstanding letter. I mean, clearly clearly, Sarah knows the genre very well. She makes she some excellent indeed, yeah. points. So, uh, please, keep, keep writing us letters. This is... These are some great discussion points. I mean, I could spend hours talking about this particular topic. I won't, but I'll address... First, I, I can't disagree with her at all. Mm -hmm. Perception is, of course, reality. And like she said, she's not the first one to bring this up. This has been the wrap on especially this, this specifically the slasher genre. So quick history here. Early 80s, Siskel and Ebert did an entire hour of a show based on this particular topic. This outcry from critics and fans was part of the reason studios, the major studios, got out of the slasher business mm -hmm. pretty quickly. People forget that. They jumped off the ship pretty quickly. They were sort of contracting it out to smaller studios and collecting money, but let's not worry about that. Okay. Anyway, let me go back and talk about the Siskel and Ebert part of it, So, because they were really at the forefront of this of this discussion. So they made two key points in the show. They had years, I think it was like 82, 83. They did their show. One was they were saying it feels like, uh, as, as per the points that Sarah made that the producers of these films are lashing out at the independent women who are now free to have sex. They're on their own. They're independent. They're not relying on men and therefore being punished for it by these, through these films. They also made a point, and they, I, I, whichever one said it, they said, these movies hate women. Hmm. So those are the key points they really made from that. A couple are, and again, I, I, I can't disagree with any of this, and I'm certainly, I mean, I was the one who just defended Frankenstein for killing small children and women earlier on, so take that for what it's worth. I'll say this in a couple points, that, yeah, it usually is the final girl, as we've come to know it, is usually always a final girl. Right. There is almost never a knight in shining armor riding in to save these women. The closest to that was probably Dr. Loomis and Halloween coming at the end, and Donald yeah. Pleasance is not the knight in shining armor. <laughs> it's not your, yeah, but, um, your archetypal knight. No, but it's, it's interesting the way they do this. These films want to have their cake and eat it too they the women are the are heavily featured as the victims and in the 80s were about as joe bob briggs used to say the three b's boobs blood and beasts mm -hmm. so you had two of those if not all three in these movies so you had you're able to get your nudity in and your exploitation and then you had the plucky jamie lee curtis or someone saving herself at the end but not really because the killer usually survived for a sequel so there was that and, and that was kind of the theme of these I would, I would exclude I Spit on Your Grave and Last House from this argument a little bit just because, 
the last house was in 1972 and it was actually based on an Ingmar Bergman film and it was primarily a grindhouse film. It was designed to be an exploitation film. It just happened to be a surprisingly well-made one. I spit on your grave is just sleazy trash Mm -hmm. that ironically would have gone completely unnoticed had Siskel and Ebert not made a big deal about it on their show Hmm. and actually turned into a cult hit through their outrage. Got the monos treatment, did it? (laughs) It did, exactly. But I would, so it it is true. It's like these films want to, I don't know that there was ever a conscious agenda to lash out at the women's movement. A lot of this, I think, was subliminal. And again, these are all just carbon copies of Halloween after about 1978, a film which I think gets off the hook for a lot of these arguments, by the way. But yeah, I, I completely see it. I completely see why people would view it that way. And I, I can't argue it. Women were the primary victims, if not exclusive victims, in these films. They were exploited in the films in the 80s. We were appealing to a... They were R-rated films appealing to a teenage audience. Some were more blatant about it than others. The argument that they made on the show about these movies hate women, I would go further with that, though. I would say these movies hate people. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if... Well, and again, there, we've we've talked about a lot of movies, some of which I haven't seen, but I see an equal amount of women and men being killed. Um, so, yeah, the body count is definitely men plus women. Like you said, we do get the the plucky girl at the end who typically survives. Right. But they are exploited. It's definitely like what we hear about now, the male gaze. I think there's definitely some of that going on that you wouldn't necessarily see, except maybe for that one scene of... Uh, Kevin Bacon's crotch in Friday the 13th. <laughs> yeah, that sure was something on the big screen. But, well, let me ask you this. You've seen, so, at the bare minimum, you sat through two of the Friday the 13th movies with me. Right. Which is a pretty good sample size for capturing the whole series, frankly. How would you describe the way the men are portrayed in those films? I would say the men are portrayed as, well, it, it depends. You have a couple of archetypal men, right? So you've got the... There was like the nerd boy. There's always right. the nerd boy that gets killed off. You get the there's there's like the hip dope smoker dude. So that's kind of like the the Kevin Bacon character. At least the first one had the 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 guy who was running the camp. Mm-hmm. And then you've got Crazy Eddie or whoever it was. Right. So they're not sympathetic characters. I mean, there's no yeah sympathetic. There's no sympathetic characters around amongst a lot of them. They are just like I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you a couple of broad stereotypes so you know exactly who this character is, in just a couple of lines of dialogue, and then I need to give you bodies that I can kill later on. Yeah, the men in these films, you're right. The men in these films are usually portrayed as idiots, perverts, potheads, yeah, or just overgrown. Oh yeah, there was the Cheech and Chong. Dude. There was the Cheech and Chong one in part three. So really, the men in these films are are really useless fools right and they all and pretty much they all die so again you're, you've got the men in these films are just basically lining up to be stabbed yep the women in these films range between being like that but then you have again the the quote-unquote virtuous one i would make an argument that almost every film where you have a hero the hero usually is the virtuous one it's the pig that builds his house out of bricks right right so i think that the, the jamie leakey the laurie strode character others after that so the, tr- the trick with all this is, again, everything Sarah said is on point. I agree with her on, on yeah. the things she said. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing with Sarah. No, 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 no. no. Stuff, yeah. and, and, you know, it's not for me to say whether, you know, as a 50-something white male, whether women should be offended by these movies or not. I totally get where they are, yeah. why they would be, and how they feel about it. But, yeah, there was, there was a feeling that, and if you look up, I think, slasher films, the definition of it, they indicate movies in which someone's killing people, usually for some Freudian purpose because of sexual repression or some other issue. Yeah. So that's where that part comes in. It's it's a great discussion. Again, I could spend all night talking about it. But yeah, I mean, Sarah makes some great points. Uh, these films, again, range wildly in quality. The men are portrayed poorly. The women are portrayed poorly. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just... But clearly, the, these films were mostly made by about, men. Like from the from the viewers, like what what films do we think do a good job of breaking some of these tropes? Yeah. Or do, well, like maybe The Descent. Uh, the Descent would be a good example of that. Um, pretty much all all female cast. Yeah. Um, I think the monsters is the closest thing they have to men in the movies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there there are probably a few. I know we had that 
Black Christmas remake that came out last year that an all-female cast that bombed badly, but mm-hmm. still the idea was there. Very I few of these... Uh, like Night of the Living Dead. I mean, I know that's a whole different genre. That goes way, way back. Yeah, yeah, but I don't think any of the female characters in that, like, fell into any of the tropes that we've seen since the 80s. I mean, everybody, like, literally everybody gets killed off in that film, and none of them... You know, obviously one of the characters in Chuck, but like some of the other characters are actually quite strong in their own way. Well, it's one of the few, I talked to someone about this recently, it's one of the few horror films in the last 50 years, 52 years now, in which a man actually survives almost to Mm -hmm. the end. Yeah. So after that, you look at, there there, there are a few cases where you had male protagonists who survive, but mostly it's, it's... it's kind of like Little Red Riding Hood, yeah. In many respects, where it does turn out to be the good girl or whoever who, who survives at the end. Yeah, and what was the one we just saw—the big Lovecraftian underwater one with Kirsten? Oh, underwater. Yeah, was that what it was? Underwater? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we see like men being rescued and whatnot. Right, right, right. By women in that, um, and I think we saw that in Aliens as well, right? So well, we can thank Sigourney Weaver and Alien for a lot of that because. That well, especially aliens, we really right. ushered in the very strong and very proactive right. female character in horror films who wasn't gonna just cower and wait for wait to be saved. Yep. Regardless, Sarah, thank you so much yes, for the letter. It was a great, a great letter. letter. Great, very astute. Uh, I don't know what we're doing next. I've been enjoying these <laughs> in terms of our next episode. I've really been enjoying these universal horror movies. So we just checked out uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Definitely worth discussing. We've got The Mummy coming up. So I don't know. Next month we'll be talking about something. I'm currently reading Revival. Our boy Mike Flanagan's in the mix for that. I'm really enjoying Stephen that. King so novel. we've got more. Well, it's not a new Stephen King novel. No, it's, it's like 2014 thereabouts. Okay, so yeah, it's yeah, yeah. So it's like 20 books ago for him. Right, already. exactly, yeah. exactly. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Again, keep those letters coming. We're on Instagram, Twitter, all the usual places. Thank you, folks. Good night. You've been listening to Black Ink Red Film with your hosts Stephen Newton and Stephen E. Payne. Music was created by Matthew Murdoch. Please send any comments, questions, or requests to blackinkredfilm at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you for listening.